Welcome to the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you haven't joined us before, we're passionate about all things internal medicine and helping you become the best tech you can be. We'll be discussing interesting internal medicine diseases, how to work closely with pet parents, and how to become the go-to tech in your practice. Now, let's start the show. Welcome back, and thank you for listening and making commitment to your learning. We hope that you are doing well. Uh, We are your hosts. I am Yvonne Brandenburg, and I am joined by Jordan Porter. And uh, (laughs) (laughs) this week's intro is a little bit different, and this is um, from suggestion from Matt, and we kind of loved it, is that we're going to pick a letter to go with. Um, how we're going to describe each other. (laughs) So in honor of Matt's suggestion this week, the letter is M and I am doing like we're doing like a Sesame street. I know right right now. (laughs) (laughs) This episode is brought to you by the letter M. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, and so Jordan, I am, I'm, I'm joined by the lovely Jordan who is marvelous magnanimous and motherly oh that's sweet (laughs) (laughs) i was like three letter three words with the letter m oh my god i have no idea (laughs) so thank you matt for giving us um a good excuse to uh be kind of even more goofy with this part of it i know right (laughs) to switch it up a bit yeah. <laughs> and I got to do the intro, which is very exciting. I got to give you a compliment. So, Aww. yeah. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you, Matt, for that suggestion. We really appreciate it. It makes it a little bit more fun. So, <laughs> I know. I was, I was trying to, like, like, last week when I was like the lovely, beautiful, wonderful, like, I'm like, man, I say that like every week. I got to say, like, I, I got to change it up a bit. So, we did. And Matt gave us a perfect excuse for it. So this week, uh, we'll do some quick housekeeping. Um, so we are, this is episode 49, which I, wow. (laughs) (laughs) Um, which means we are creeping to our one year mark, which is insane. I can't believe I, I, I remember a year ago we were talking about starting the podcast and we started recording some of the episodes, um to launch for vet tech week and that's like that that's like less than a month away which is crazy it just blows my mind that like i mean like i always knew that i wanted to do this but like it's one of those projects that you don't realize a whole year's gone by doing yeah i was i was really worried after like the sixth or seventh episode we'd just be like we're done forget it (laughs) like nobody listens to us or like we're we're run out of topics turns out we still have like a million topics to talk about yeah we have and barely scratched the us. surface which is amazing so <laughs> yeah we do we do have a lot of listeners right now which is pretty crazy we just hit over twenty two thousand downloads which is also totally mind-blowing but mm-hmm. it, the other part that's mind-blowing is it just keeps growing every week um we get more and more listeners which is awesome um but for for our one year episode which we we launched for vet tech appreciation week we did that on purpose because we love vet tech appreciation week um but we're going to be celebrating our our one year as a podcast 
we're going to be doing a crossover kind of bonus episode with several podcasts, um, including Radio Vet Nurse, uh, the Anesthesia Nerds podcast, Mm -hmm. Vet Tech Tech Cafe, Cafe. and Two Vets Talk Pets. Is that everybody? Mm -hmm. And us, yeah. So, so yeah. I think those are so far everybody that's involved. Um, we're Jordan and I. We're gonna have prizes and goodies for the week because we're gonna have the crossover event. We're also doing some other bonus episodes that are kind of in the works, and then um, to kind of kick off Vet Tech Appreciation Week, we are gonna be doing a live webinar on Sunday, October 11th, 2020. Um, We're gonna do it at 8.30 in the morning Pacific Standard Time or 11.30 Eastern. Um, And then (laughs) if you're in the UK or uh, Australia, we're sorry, you you have to convert your times for yourself. Hopefully. (laughs) hopefully (laughs) I think that's that's early enough that we'll get most of them. Yeah, I'm worried about Australia. Because that one tends to be the one that throws us. I feel like that might be the middle of the night for them. However, this will be recorded and we will post it in our membership site. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So um, this is the live webinar is going to be a one hour brace approved CE. So everybody that attends will get a race certificate from us. So we just need everybody to let us know where to send that. Um, And the topic is going to be performing manual platelet counts. Uh, So if you uh, work in internal medicine or you work in a general practice, even emergency, uh, and you want to learn how to do manual platelet counts and just be a little bit more proficient at it, you would like to earn an hour of race approved CE, come join us. We'll also have some handouts and stuff that we'll be able to email you guys. So, you know, you'll get all that from us, but that is going to be, um, some of the stuff we're doing for that tech appreciation week. So just keep a, keep an eye out on our, Facebook group and in the membership for some of the, the logistics of the week. But, uh, we're, we're really excited that it's been a year and, uh, it's Vet Tech Appreciation Week. Who doesn't, who doesn't love Vet Tech Appreciation Week? Right. Because we <laughs> appreciate all the Vet Techs out there. Yes. <laughs> if we haven't mentioned that like one or two times since we started this podcast a year ago. I think, I think we, I think we have, but here and there, maybe. Yeah. exactly um and i don't think we had any questions uh well we did have one question about the membership um this was something that someone had sent us an email about asking about a clinical membership we do have clinical memberships available. Um, and so what this would be is if you have somebody at your work, you know, hospital manager, the doctor, whoever it is that wants to be in charge of the account, uh, they can purchase the clinical account, which means they pay a lump sum for um, a certain number of memberships. And then uh, that way, you know, if you're in the membership, you don't have to pay. It's the clinic that's paying for it. So there is more information on our website. So internal medicine for vettechsmembership.com. 
we do have that information there as well. If for some reason you've got more members uh, or more people that want to be in the membership than what we've got listed, definitely just send us an email. We can make things work for you. Um, so that is something that we do have. This week's episode, though, will be approved, well, is approved for one hour of race approved CE. So members can complete the quiz to get your certificate. Non-members, though, you can use this as a self-study in most places. I know my state doesn't do self-study, but some do. Um, yeah, I feel like the, some of the states and, and countries, depending where you're at, they are lifting that up a little bit to include some of that self-study, um, just because of the limited amount of in-person things right now. Um, so yeah. just check with your, you know, your organizing body to see what is approved, but if it does take race approval, you know, you can be in the membership to get that. Um, so just completing the quiz and you'll get your certificate. Yep. But what are we talking about this week? This week we're finishing up our liver series. That's right, baby. Coming out of is the this liver. This is the last liver. This is episode? the last liver. Oh, for now. for now. Wow. We still have a lot of liver stuff to talk about, but this yeah, week we we're, <laughs> we're going to be talking, um, hepatic shunts so intrahepatic and extrahepatic liver shunts in our furry dog friends i touch on cats just a little bit but not a whole lot and we'll discuss that why turns out there's like a million different names for <laughs> what to call a, a hepatic shunt or a liver shunt so there's congenital portosystemic shunt extrahepatic portosystemic shunt intrahepatic portosystemic shunt liver shunt congenital vascular anomaly portosystemic shunts or PSS. Um, mm -hmm. And a lot of times too, shunts are actually named on like how the blood is, like what it's connected to, like what the blood supply is connected to. So sometimes you'll have like a gastric portosystemic wow. yeah. or, or a vena cava. There's a lot of names for it, but for the sake of this episode, I'll just be saying liver shunt or PSS. There you go. To save my mouth just, and my brain. Just say liver shunts. <laughs> yep. It's going to be easiest. Liver shunts. Just depends on where it's located. <laughs> yep, exactly. Uh, so the definition of this, though, is an abnormal connection between systemic circulation and the portal vascular system. So in a normal dog patient, so blood typically drains from the abdominal organs, such as the spleen, the pancreas, and the intestines, and then travels to the liver. So portal blood then travels through the liver, and when it travels through the, the liver, it allows for detoxification and metabolism um, of that blood. After the liver, the blood is then released back into systemic circulation, because, you know, we, we love our, like, loops of just, like, continuous normal function. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> However, if a shunt is present, blood bypasses the liver, so it skips the liver, and this means that there's no detoxification or metabolism, and the blood bypasses the liver and goes directly back into systemic circulation. So what happens is this allows for toxins to circulate throughout the body instead of being filtered out. So if yeah. you can picture it in your brain. I was going like to say, and, just, and this is why um, when, when we we suspect one. I, I don't know about you, but if, if you've got like a patient that comes in and the owner says, Oh yeah, every time they eat, they're kind of weird afterwards. Yeah. That's so classic for a shunt because what happens is 
nutrients go into the guts, right? Your Mm -hmm. VLI and the vasculature there do what it's supposed to do. But instead of going from the guts to your liver, like Jordan just talked about, it says, (laughs) and then just deposits all that stuff that was absorbed from the guts into the bloodstream. And we need to find an artist for our episodes (laughs) because here's what I'm picturing after that laugh. I'm picturing that evil guy in like an old like cartoon on a railroad track <laughs> diverting the like the train. Dude. <laughs> train. Yeah. And so like he's diverting the train to go towards the damsel versus going the way it's supposed to do. Oh, okay. Anyway. We are crazy in case you haven't noticed that, but I think that's what people appreciate about us. I'm sure now people are picturing this, how the blood is now traveling. (laughs) (laughs) The train tracks to the liver were diverted by the dastardly shunt. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Wearing a top hat and a weird mustache that he And the mustache and the twirls. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. Okay, continue with your educational statement, please. <laughs> well, and, and then you've got all that stuff. So glucose and proteins and all that, instead of being metabolized appropriately into something the body can use, it is now bypassed that in its, in its raw form circulating in the blood. And the, the body doesn't like that, um, especially the brain. The brain, you know, it makes it, it we call it the neurologic like shunty mm-hmm. look to them so yeah sometimes they can get like a little ataxic and just mm-hmm. drunk i've had clients complain that their pets are like drunk after eating <laughs> like, yeah 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 um so there are two types of shunts which i kind of said in the beginning um so there's an intrahepatic shunt which is inside the liver so within the liver, there is something shunting blood flow back out to systemic circulation versus uh, extra hepatic shunt is a shunt outside the liver. These are the ones that we more commonly see like on ultrasound. Mm-hmm. Um, if we're going to see a liver shunt and it, it's really cool because the vessel, I mean, like the vessel goes to the liver, but it's also not stopping and just going to the liver. It's just going around and going back to systemic <laughs> circulation. Yeah. It's like, I'm just going to do something else. It's cool. (laughs) We're going to go over here. We don't want to follow this party. (laughs) Well, and I think it's important to you to remember this. So what this is, is that vasculature is there. It's present in utero. So you have your fetus that obviously they're not eating. So the Mm -hmm. gut is not working. So in utero, it's important that, you know, the guts and everything, it still has blood supply. So yes, we need vasculature there, but it doesn't need to detoxify because Mm -hmm. the, the mother has already done that. Um, so it, it bypasses the liver. So that, that's where the, the shunt happens. Ideally when the baby is born, those vessels then collapse and close themselves off and are no longer part of it. And so in the normal maturation of a, of a neonate that goes away. So we don't have to worry about it, but in, in some patients it just stays open and, and for, we don't always know why this happens, Mm -hmm. but it is, it's usually a congenital. You can get some acquired shunts, but um, most of the times you know, they're kind of born with it. Um, and we don't know why. Yeah. And, and yeah. And so if a hepatic shunt is present, this will deprive the liver from receiving factors. And what, 
when they're talking about factors, they're talking about hepatotrophic factors and this aids in hepatic development. So if, mm, if the mm -hmm. liver is deprived of those, then the deprivation leads to hepatic atrophy, meaning the liver cannot reach a normal size and will be smaller than normal. So essentially, if you have a neonate, like the liver's not receiving the nutrients that it's used to, even though it's also supposed to be like detoxifying, it also gains nutrients in order to grow with the body. And it doesn't. And that's why a lot of times we get these patients who do come in smaller than normal or they're the runts or they're, they just, there's a lot of failure to thrive. Right. <laughs> Yeah. There. Well, they're not getting the nutrients, so they mm -hmm. can't develop. And then, you know, when we do an ultrasound, we see that microhepatic, right? So the small yep. liver and we're like, Ooh, they're super after eating and it's a small liver. We mm -hmm. really need to go on a shunt hunt and look for that. And, and I don't know about you guys, but we use, um, most of the times we don't see hepatic shunts on ultrasound. We'll usually call in a radiologist no, a lot. or we'll do CT like every once in a while we'll find one, but most of the times we don't see it. Yeah. We found a few, but a lot of times if people are willing to correct the shunt, which we'll talk mm -hmm. about a little bit later, then we refer them to university to have like a CT with contrast or, um, CT portogram. Is it? Yes, yeah. that. Mm -hmm. um, some I think some of the universities around here might do fluoro, but I, I don't. I don't really remember. Um, so if they are willing to fix it, we'll send them somewhere to have everything done all at once. Like if we suspect, mm. like strongly suspect a shunt, and like blood work and everything scream shunt, we'll just refer them so they can get the CT and surgery all at the same time and same place. Mm. Like so. Yeah. See, our surgeons do the surgery, so we can do it all in our clinic. So again, it, it depends on where you work, you know, whether or not mm -hmm. you have surgeons that, that will do it. Um, or if you have a CT, like, yeah, I mean, it, there's a lot of potential complications and it is, it, it is definitely more involved. So, yeah. So as Yvonne said, those shunts can be congenital or acquired, but congenital is definitely more common. She already explained pretty much why. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so most can... Most congenital hepatic shunts, though, usually affect single vessels. So as Yvonne was saying, like you have the bypass that's already there when they're in the womb, um, and it's supposed to close off and then direct to the liver, but it doesn't. So it's usually a single vessel versus acquired hepatic shunts are always almost always affected by multiple vessels. And this is typically caused by something that causes extreme hepatic hypertension. And it can lead to like scarring and disease of the liver and acquired hepatic shunts from what I was reading typically have like a poor outcome also too, because it's multiple, oh, yeah. vessels, it's multiple vessels to fix versus a single vessel to fix. Cause you're never going to fix all the vessels in a multiple shunt. So what are, what are some of the things that can cause hepatic hypertension? Like my brain so, can't remember. So. <laughs> so hepatic hypertension can actually be caused by a lot of times it's caused by something that's occluding blood flow to the liver or throughout mm. the liver. So sometimes mm -hmm. this can be um, tumors, it can be cirrhosis, it can be clots, blood clots, um, so emboli, mm. and then heartworm disease as well, heart, right-sided heart failure, anything that's oh, going to yeah, cause some sense. sort of occlusion within the liver. And then so that'll cause portal hypertension and then it diverts blood basically. 
So yeah, from what I was reading, it sounds like if there's backward flow of blood within the liver from some sort of occlusion or from the hypertension, it can actually, because the portal system is valveless, there's no valves telling the blood to flow one way only, and it starts mm. flowing backwards, this is what leads to the formation of acquired portal system. Yeah, it, it was pretty interesting. And I mean, as we know, though, too, I mean, the liver and albumin play a huge factor in this, too. So ascites mm, usually mm-hmm. <laughs> plays a role as well. I mean, if blood doesn't flow all in the same direction that it's supposed to, the body gets pretty angry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Backwards flow of blood is bad. <laughs> yeah. So um, hepatic shunts are actually most common in canine patients, kind of like I said in the beginning, but they can occur in felines. Extrahepatic shunts are the ones that are on the outside of the liver, like we talked about, typically affect small and toy breed dogs and felines. And then our mm. intrahepatic shunts affect large breed canines. Interesting. Okay. Common breeds. There's actually a lot of common breeds, but of course my number one choice was Yorkies. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, which ones have I seen in surgery? Definitely Yorkies and mini schnauzers. Oh, and yeah. Maltese. Those are like the three that I've definitely seen. Oh, yeah. My one hepatic encephalopathy case that I can very much remember and like think of every time I think of HE was a Maltese. Mm. Uh, <laughs> but they have Irish wolfhounds, Cairn terriers, Australian cattle dogs, golden retrievers, mm. old English sheepdogs, because golden retrievers need more problems, right? Mm. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then Labrador retrievers. So... You have a good mix of like small and large dogs on this list of common breeds. Yeah. And it's interesting. Um, it's funny that we're talking about it right now. Um, literally yesterday at work, uh, we had one come in that the it's, it was like a 12 year old dog and I think it was a Shih Tzu. Yeah. She was a Shih Tzu. And it was funny because when I was talking to the owner, she was like, Oh yeah, she's just super clumsy and just runs into things. And I was like, well, that's, that's not, that's not normal. And she's like, no, she's always been like that. But then when I talked to her, you know, to get full history, they've only had the dog for two years. Um, oh, I was and like, so how they, did they not recognize us in a 12 year old dog? <laughs> yeah. So they rescued her and they just assumed that she was old and yeah. like stumbly and stuff from being old. Well, when she finally got some lab work done for the first time, like all of her liver enzymes were up. And so she came to us for an ultrasound and we were like, Ooh, you have a tiny liver. You're super stumbly and weird neurologic. We're going to do a bioacids on you. Cause we're pretty sure you're a shunt. Um, actually she came in two days ago because we got the results yesterday and like her bile acids were through the roof and we were like, yeah. yep, yeah. you're shunty. Um, so yeah, it's, it's crazy that, um, yeah, but again, she's a little tiny dog and, you know, would, would I do surgery on a 12 year old dog? Probably not. <laughs> no, probably not. That's what I, yeah, that's what I mean. Like we don't, we don't, won't move forward with like CTs and all that stuff unless people are, I don't know. Cause usually anesthesia is going to be a little bit more difficult in these patients anyway. Oh yeah. Liver can't sure. metabolize. Mm-hmm. So it's not one of those things where like you want to do it just to find out if you're not going to do anything about it. Yeah. Well, and I think too, like, are you going to talk about surgical procedures a little bit later? Yeah. mm -hmm. Because 
intrahepatic versus extrahepatic. There's, yeah, those are very different procedures and, you know, prognostic indicators and stuff like that. So I think, you know, yes, we, we hope we catch it early. Um, but it does, I definitely, it doesn't always get caught early. I feel like, no. I feel like these are usually caught like middle age, which is oh for sure. Sad. I can't tell you how many is like four or five, six year old patients yeah. I've seen that come in yeah. with it, which is why, I mean, so when we obtain history, symptoms can be vague. And a lot of mm. times our clients are like, well, they've always been like that. They've always Right. In a, like a great, they have always, always been like, yeah. <laughs> like the, that's, they just their assume normal. that's their normal. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So it's like, they've always been a grazer, like they eat, but like they'll eat throughout the entire day or mm-hmm. like they stumble after they eat a little bit, or sometimes they'll act a little bit more just dopey, blah, not necessarily yeah. lethargic, just something's off, but maybe people think that that's just normal for the dog mm-hmm. because it's not a true symptom. Um, so a lot of times these patients will present like with small body stature at times failure to thrive in our very, very young patients. It's funny too. Cause I think my aunt actually has a hepatic shunt dog and it's a Yorkie. Mm. Oh. And the only reason why it got brought up is because the dog is little, like he's, he's very, he's less than four pounds. He's small. Oh my God. He's kind oh. of a little jerk. Like he's got small man syndrome and he just yaps, <laughs> but she's like this vet wouldn't neuter him because he's not four pounds. And I was like, first off, find a different vet and get him mm. neutered because he's peeing all over everything. Mm. Second, like, I'm pretty sure your dog probably has a liver shunt too. Like his hair coat's just like, it's not as shiny as his brother because she has his brother too. And like- And let me guess, the brother's much bigger. Yeah, he's 12 pounds. Yeah, that's another thing too. Like, especially if you have litter mates, <laughs> if you've yeah. got one that's super runty, you're like, hmm. And he's always super skinny, despite the fact that he eats. And this is what mm. she always tells me, he eats great. Uh, he's very, very skinny, he, but they just think it's because he's not neutered. And I'm like, and yeah, so and his hair coat's just like, it's just off and he's just little, but otherwise he's fine. Like he doesn't do the weird things after he eats and like he actually yeah. is pretty, pretty energetic. So it, symptoms can be vague. And they don't always have a poor body condition. So they don't always have poor hair coat. Uh, yeah, I, I, I say the Maltese it- I saw. It depends on how bad the shunt is too. Like, Mm -hmm. do they, is everything shunted away from the liver or, you know, how much is shunted away? So it, it it definitely depends. Well, cause sometimes you have that diversion where maybe half the blood does go through the liver and then half the blood gets shunted around and goes just straight systemically. So yeah, like you said, like there's definitely a variance there. Um, so sometimes you can see behavioral abnormalities, kind of like we talked about, like a lot of clients will be like, they just seem quiet for a puppy. Mm. And they they're don't so well energetic. behaved and you're like, <laughs> there's a <so> little, <laughs> you're like, well, they were well behaved because they were derpy. It's fine. Yeah. It's fine. I'm going to go on a soapbox moment for a real quick second. Uh-oh. Those little tiny, tiny little freaking like fist size puppies that they keep creating oh god really is driving me nuts yes yeah i'm like a how do you not step like step on these suckers b you're creating liver shunts like i don't understand here (laughs) 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 oh my god that's how they're keeping them small (laughs) yeah that'd be so horrible (laughs) wouldn't it I don't think why, they're why hepatic we... shunts because 
Because their their fur coats always look amazing. So. I know they're always like super fluffy, but I'm like, you guys are doing something genetically wrong here. Oh my god, that's amazing! You're like, what is it? Yeah, yeah. how how are you oh. making sure that this liver vessel does not like actually go to the liver when you're breeding these things? Oh my god, that's amazing. I'm just I'm just kidding. I apologize if anybody's breeding these things, but <laughs> why do we need to make these breeds smaller? So you can put them in your pocket, Jordan. I do like carrying animals around in my pocket. I do as well. It's usually a kitten or a puppy. And I'm like, hee hee, look, I have a pocket pet. (laughs) (sighs) I very rarely see anything pockety sized. If I do, it's usually a liver shunt. (laughs) Right? It's like playing with Polly Pocket as a kid. Yeah. Remember Polly Pocket? I do remember Polly Pocket. Not really as a little kid, but yes. (laughs) Uh yeah Mm -hmm. it's all right anyway more severe (laughs) symptoms (laughs) yeah more severe symptoms can include actual like lethargy where people are Mm -hmm. noticing that their patients are or their pets are lethargic anorexia vomiting diarrhea pupd hematuria strange area yep constipation all internal medicine symptoms that we typically commonly see (laughs) Excessive drooling, Um, so tylism. I love that word, tylism. Tylism is actually commonly noted in felines with hepatic shunts. So Hmm. I can't say that I've ever, I mean, hepatic shunts in cats are not super common anyway. So I haven't really seen an excessive drool in cat coming. And if I do, I just assume uh, it's nauseous. I assume like a foreign body of some sort usually (laughs) like a string under the tongue or something yeah 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 it's it it's interesting i don't i don't know if i've seen a liver shunt cat i don't feel like i haven't um but i I wonder if that's case yeah and, and part of me wonders if that's just because we didn't diagnose it you know what i mean because it's kind of like our lepto in cats <laughs> right um to me these these symptoms just seem like a cat <laughs> like, <laughs> like okay you have gi disease um which i mean i guess you know in a way it is gi because a liver is a liver because the liver is an accessory organ to to the gi so interesting hmm. I imagine though that those cats actually present though with other, other GI symptoms. Like it, they don't present with a microhepatica. They don't really have elevated liver enzymes unless they're yeah. fighting like triditis. That's true. So I don't know. And then like Yvonne touched on a little bit before, neurologic signs can definitely occur, especially after meals, mm-hmm. especially with our hepatic encephalopathy cases. So these signs can include things like head pressing, ataxia, blindness, seizures. So pretty noticeable neurologic signs. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah. And again, it depends on how severe it is, but some of these neurologic signs can be really bad. Um, So yeah. yeah. My first HG or HG, HE patient that I ever saw was a Maltese and came in just ataxic but like couldn't walk wasn't Mm. having seizures but was doing that neck stretching thing like Mm. and then as he progressively got a little bit better it would progress from like 
I can't move to, okay, now I'm going to circle. Okay. Now I'm going to head press. And like, we would just, it was like backwards neurologic signs. Like, cause we Weird, were just, huh. we were diluting out his toxins. Yeah. So interesting. Yeah. It, it was really interesting. And the dog did great. Went, ended up having surgery, fixed the liver shunt and is doing stellar still. And that was, God, I saw that case when I was doing my PTS application. I'm pretty sure I put the right. hand down as one of my case logs. <laughs> um, so that was over two years ago. Nice. So anyway, <laughs> diagnostics. I was going to say diagnostics is, is huge with these guys. Right. Um, most of the times we'll do, well, we do the medicine workup, <laughs> which is like the biochemistry. So we look to see what the liver chemistries are. Um, they can definitely be normal. Um, you may just see slightly elevated uh, ALT or ALKFOS, but T-Billy tends to be normal. Um, so a normal liver chemistry does not exclude a liver shunt. So that's just something to kind of keep in the back of your mind. Uh, it, you can see decreases in the BUN, creatinine, glucose, and albumin. And the reason for that, again, is because the liver is not creating those metabolites that are needed. So you'll see them actually low in a, in a shunty patient. Uh, CBCs, you can see some mild anemia. You can definitely be normal. If you've got, if you do a urinalysis, again, can be normal. You may have some urate crystals. So I, it's funny because every time I think urate crystals, I think of, uh, Dalmatian. Um, and you can also see inflammation in the urinalysis. So some increase in white blood cells. I think, I feel like bile acids are kind of our go-to. Sure. And we, we discussed in detail about what the bile acids is testing for in episode 47. Yep. So if you need to go back and listen to that and understand exactly what's happening and what the bio acids test is testing for definitely go back and listen to episode 47 because i found that really interesting when i was like i know what bio acids test is but i right. wanted to know a little bit more exactly. <laughs> the big thing about bio acids though is we need to make sure that when we're performing a bio acids that they've had a 12-hour fast um, so we draw a pre-sample. We want to make sure that we are drawing gently. So don't just crank on the plunger to get your sample because we want to be very careful not to hemolyze the sample because the hemolyzed sample can make your, um, make your numbers off. So what you want to do is get your pre-sample. Then you want to feed them uh, a fatty food. So, you know, don't use GI low fat. <laughs> I mean, you can, but ideally some sort of a fat food. Um, the one I just did because the dog, unfortunately, just did not want to eat anything. I ended up syringe feeding some uh, Hills AD too, um, because again, I can get that in a syringe and he bought me, but um, that's okay. We got it in. <laughs> uh, and you don't need a ton of the food. We just, I think I did, I don't know, four to six mils. Yeah, I think... When I looked into this a while ago, it's, it asks for like maybe two tablespoons, which is not a lot. Like, I think that's actually 10 mils, right? 
Yeah. And I mean, this is of this liquid, is a teeny but... dog, so yeah. 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 It definitely depends on the patient, but it doesn't take much. Yeah. And then you're going to wait two hours. So we typically like, this is just something to kind of keep in mind is we do an ultrasound first because we want to do a fasted ultrasound. <laughs> then we do our uh, bile acids. And so, and then they usually go home after that. And the and, and bile acids again is an indicator of uh, liver function. So, you know, is it functioning appropriately? And and I think we talked about this in episode forty-seven. Is a mild elevation in bile acids is not that big of a deal. We're talking like the the patient that I just had. I think her, sorry, it's a girl. Um, her pre was like. 327 and her post was 400 and something so again, yeah <laughs> it's usually markedly elevated, elevated. <laughs> yeah and and usually the i mean the post sample should be more elevated than the pre and but both samples should be greater than 100 um mm-hmm. versus like our normal like we have some liver dysfunction test like you're gonna mm-hmm. have elevated bile acids but it's gonna be like 120 or you know it's not going to be 50 and you're like well (laughs) yeah exactly but biolysis testing it's important to know that it's not specific to a liver shunt like it can be elevated with any sort of liver dysfunction but Mm -hmm. it's going to be more like markedly elevated for a liver shunt than for just general like hepatic dysfunction or hepatitis so protein c levels uh protein c levels can help differentiate between a portosystemic shunt and other hepatobiliary diseases, especially uh, microvascular dysplasia. So if your protein C level is high, um, that's, or excuse me, yeah, if it's high, we're looking more at microvascular dysplasia. But again, it just indicates it. We haven't said yes 100% either way. Um, but if it's low, if your protein C level is low, that's more indicative of shunting. And basically what happens is, see if I can get this right. So protein C is a measure of the portal blood flow. Um, so basically how much blood is able to flow through the liver. So when it's shunted away, that means the blood's not flowing through the liver. So that's why it's low versus with microvascular dysplasia, blood is still getting through the liver. It's just not able to adequately like absorbing. Yeah. As easy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the only way to be able to really diagnose it is by biopsy. So this is why it's important for diagnostics that, we're doing like a CT and stuff like that because unfortunately, as we just learned, you can have both a shunt and microvascular dysplasia, which is just abnormal vessels. So you can have all sorts of funky stuff going on. Yeah. So it's super common. Like when we talk about more diagnostics a little bit further down, like it's super common while repairing a hepatic shunt a liver biopsy should also be obtained too, to also mm-hmm. rule out that the patient also has microvascular dysplasia. Yay. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> so radiographs and ultrasound can also be used. We talked about it so much in the 
hepatitis episode, so I'm not going to touch on it too much, mm-hmm. but what we're going to see is microhepatica. And then with ultrasound, sometimes a skilled ultrasonographer is able to detect extra hepatic shunting. You're not exactly. really, you're not going to see intrahepatic shunting. Um, but again, that's, my doctors found it a couple times. Um, mm-hmm. So it's definitely possible, just hard. Yep. <laughs> And then like, like we talked about, so we're going to use CT scan. IV contrast is used to light up the vessels, um, to see where that blood is flowing and you want the liver to light up as well. Uh, there's also nuclear scintigraphy. So this is (laughs) not that I would ever wish this on anyone. Uh, it's a non-invasive technique where you administer a radioisotope into the colon (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then the idea is the blood vessels um, in the colon absorb the uh, the radioisotope, which then you can see if it goes to the liver or if it bypasses the liver and goes somewhere else. So it's mm-hmm. it's uh, <laughs> it's fun stuff. See what absorbs in the from the colon, and then. Um, portography which is you know the the x-ray dye um study that specifically highlights the portal system um we use omnipake Mm -hmm. for ours um i don't know what do you guys use for your contrast yeah omnipake Omnipake. okay yeah and omnipake is an iv injection um i don't think i don't know hexol Iohexol, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think Iohexol is yeah. the generic, right? And the Omnipake is brand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I mean, yeah, it, it lights up on X-ray, lights up on CT, like it's great. Mm-hmm. And you want to be careful when you're doing these particular studies uh, because we kind of we talked about it. I can't even remember which episode, but where we talked about uh, how quickly. The blood flow goes. I think it was in one of our kidney episodes. I think, it, yeah, it was a kidney episode <laughs> <laughs> where we talked about how fast it takes, you know, for the blood to be around the body. So, for our portograms, CT portograms, it's usually very important for us to time it really quickly. Mm-hmm. So, you give the IV injection of the radio opaque dye, and we usually end up like, if we can run out of the room as someone hits the start button. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, get it in as fast as you possibly can, which sometimes you need two IV catheters to get it in fast enough. And then you're running out of the room <laughs> so that you can start your CT. Depending on the volume, we've done this a few times and it actually has worked really well. So depending on the volume, what we'll do is we'll put it on a syringe pump and if your syringe pump can push it fast enough, because it's a it's a fairly thick liquid. Um, yeah, and, it's and sticky, you need, and you're giving it at such a high volume that you yes. need a large catheter. Like you're yes. not putting a don't try a 22 gauge catheter for these guys. Really should be 18 if you can do that. Yeah, or you can. But so 18. what we'll do is we'll like push the start button on the mm. syringe pump we'll leave the room and then when the syringe pump is about halfway done we'll push the start button so that way contrast is still being given mm. like as it as it's still as it's running so especially it kind of yeah. depends on where we start in the patient like if we're doing chest and abdomen we're going to push mm. the start button a little bit sooner to get through the chest and then see the contrast in the abdomen 
depending on what we're yeah, looking for. Yeah, and I they guess. also uh, they do make the auto. I think it's called an auto injector, which is kind of like a syringe pump, but it pushes faster, harder um, hmm. because syringe pumps can only go so fast. Um, yeah, I think when you have a sixty mil syringe, it can only push a mil a minute. No. Yeah. Is it? No, I think it's a little uh, bit faster than that. It's a little bit faster than that, but it's still not. I think I can, I think the maximum speed I could push that was I could push 60 mils over four minutes. So we would run it for two minutes, then push mm. the start button and then have it run for two minutes, like while the CT was going. So um, once we've diagnosed a hepatic shunt, and again, this is, there's a lot of steps. So including radio radiology that is needed. Um, and then this is there, there's two treatment options. There's medical management and then there's surgical intervention, surgical management. Um, and it really, I think it depends on a couple of things. You know, we, we talk about age of patient. So the older a patient mm -hmm. is the more post-op complications there are. Um, so, you know, doing surgery is not necessarily the best choice for an older patient. Um, if they have comorbidities, if they have a high ASA, um, for anesthesia, that those are all things that can potentially make it so, you know, we don't do surgery. And of course there's the whole, how much, you know, a client has finance wise, you know, do they have insurance or do they not have insurance? Um, those are really big limiting factors, um, for surgery. Cause it's not a cheap surgery. You know, we're talking about all the pre-op workup, including CT scans, which are usually not an inexpensive thing, the surgery itself, and then the post-op care for these kids. Um, it's, it's not a quick go home the next day. There's usually multiple days of monitoring to make sure they're not having issues or consequences from, from surgery. Um, and then medical management, uh, is, you know, it's, it's a great option for some of them. Um, uh, especially, you know, if we can make them go into surgery a little bit more stable. So, mm -hmm. um, especially mm -hmm. if you've got like a hepatic encephalopathy patient that has high, um, blood ammonia levels, we can use lactulose to help bind the ammonia. Um, so it doesn't get into the patient. So that's something that we can do. Um, low protein diets. Yeah. So low protein diets. So this is, these are diets that are lower in protein, but they have good quality protein. Um, so LD, KD, I think GD. So those are, so those are kind of the Hills diets and Royal Canin. Um, you can look at like the selected protein ones because again, it's lower in protein, but it's good quality protein. And so this just helps, you know, less protein absorption means that the liver doesn't have to work as hard and, and trans, you know, it's obviously it can't, if, if the blood is shunting from there <laughs> um, and not getting to the liver, then you have all these proteins that are going into the circulation, which cause problems. Um, antibiotics. So I think, we do, what is it, metronidazole? Is it metronidazole? Yeah. Yeah, it's metronidazole. And then either amoxicillin or clavamox or one of those. Yeah, which you do have to be careful with metronidazole because metronidazole 
if given too much can also cause neurologic issues. Yeah. And I think, I think that's one of the ones that you do have to do like a decreased dose for mm-hmm. these guys because of the liver, um, function. So that's just something too to keep in the back of your mind. Again, decreased liver function. So dosages can be, can be different. And then if they're seizuring, having appropriate anti-seizure medications for them at appropriate non-liver toxic doses. <laughs> um, so if, you know, you've got your patient more stable with medical management and the owners decide to do surgical intervention, there's, um, there's kind of two different ways to do it. There's the full ligation. So it's like a ring ligation ligator. clips. Ligation clips. Yeah. So they, they put them in place because again, these are big vessels. Usually they're strong vessels. So they have the ligation clips. Um, there's also the cellophane. Have you heard of the cellophane oh, no. technique? Yvonne. I don't even know. I don't know how it I works. don't do surgery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's, there's a cellophane technique, which, um, it slowly closes the vessel. Like it, it crunches down. Like I think of vet wrap, um, you know how like over time vet wrap gets a little bit tighter. Yeah. It's kind of, it's kind of weird, but the problem is like any of these potentially could not take, which is oh, why yeah, yeah. we keep them in hospital. <laughs> well, well, that and like, I mean, it also can be done with a suture or there's an IV injection kind of, so when I was reading about the IV injection too, which can embolize mm. the vessel, I was thinking of what they do when they do like the collagen injections for ectopic ureters mm. or urinary incontinence. Yeah. Um, but also like partial ligation can be performed too, mm-hmm. but there's an increased risk for portal hypertension, which would lead to more shunting. Right. Which makes sense. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, are they perfect procedures? No, but you know, it's just something that depending on how bad the patient is, how bad the shunts are, these are all options, especially if it's a younger dog, um, with not a lot of other issues, you know, we may be more likely to do surgical intervention. So, um, but that's, again, you're talking with a surgeon and having that consult, whether that's where you're at, or if you're sending it to a university setting, um, they're having that conversation. I think so because of every case with liver shunting is so different, mm-hmm. but the conversation should all go pretty much the same, especially depending on what people decide. So client communication is pretty important. We want to, we want to inform the clients to look for signs of like portal hypertension. Yeah. So signs of portal hypertension and this could, again, this could be after surgery as well. So you're going to look for vomiting, diarrhea, depression, not like I'm depressed, but depressed mental state um, ascites. So do they have fluid in their abdomen? Are they showing signs of respiratory distress? Um, so those are all things to be looking for with, with potential portal hypertension. And that's also for us to understand while a patient is in hospital, those are also the things that we are looking for post-op to make sure, you know, we're not all of a sudden having some portal hypertension. 
And I think we usually keep them two days post-op is what we usually do, at least depending on how they're doing. Yeah. And lactulose and diet should also be continued in these patients post-op just because it takes time for liver cells to adjust to new circulation. Like, especially if you're doing the surgery in a patient that's five, six, seven, eight older. <laughs> the body has compensated. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So you definitely, it's not going to be one of those conversations with, with clients where they're like, well, we did the surgery, so now I don't have to do meds anymore. Yeah. yeah. We're like, no, you still have to do meds and you might have to continue doing meds for the rest of their life. Just because sometimes the surgery doesn't always fix it a hundred percent. Right. So, well, and, and it depends, is it extra hepatic or is it intrahepatic? Yeah. Right? So that's, those are big different conversations. Yeah. And those are definitely conversations to have with the surgeon. Mm-hmm. It's not my area of expertise, <laughs> but follow-up bioacid testing should be performed just to monitor response to surgery. Also protein C levels should be monitored as well, because in hepatic shunts, protein C levels should be low, but increased numbers of protein C when we do that test actually indicate portal blood flow. So that would be a good indicator to see whether or not the surgery is actually working like it should. So mm-hmm. clients will probably also get like a little upset about that too, is having to recheck these values semi-frequently. It kind of depends on the patient, how frequently those values should be rechecked. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because that test is big. They have to leave them for two hours or, you know, it's clients don't want to spend that all the time, especially when they spend that much on a surgery to fix it. Yeah. And I think that comes down to conversations between, you know, if it's the internist or the general practitioner and the surgeon to be like, okay, for post-op, you know, what is, what does it look long-term? You know, it's, again, it's not one and done. There's going to be things that we need to do to monitor post-op. Mm-hmm. And then some cautions. Yeah. My caution for this week is just because performing bioacids is so critical in aiding in diagnosis of liver shunts, just using proper venipuncture is critical to get accurate results. So we really want to confirm that a patient hasn't eaten and has been properly fasted. We also really want to be sure that our drawing technique of our venipuncture is going to be nice and slow and steady just because we really want to avoid that hemolysis that can really end it, like interfere with those results. Yep. So good venipuncture technique is critical. And gentle handling of your samples. It's the tip of the week. So if liver shunts interest you, I would recommend just taking time to review like the vasculature just for a better understanding as to how like circulation to and from the liver go. So that way you can better imagine like a vessel bypassing the liver and circulating toxins. I did this when I was researching this episode. I just opened up my anatomy and physiology book and I was just looking at the different mm. vessels and seeing where where they came from to get to the liver to better imagine why it could shunt from the vena cava to the liver, from the GI tract to the liver. Like So it was one of those things yeah. where I know what a liver shunt is, but when you really want to envision it and just get a better understanding of it, it helps to just go back and look at the basics. And now for the question of the week. Uh, this week's question of the week is, do you have a specific patient that comes to mind when you think of liver shunts? What breed was the patient? Did they pursue surgery? What symptoms did they present with? You know, kind of give us an idea of, of what that patient looked like and, um, you know, how you went about diagnosing them. That would, you know, just let us know. 
Um, yeah. You can get answer the question of the week either in the Facebook page. You can answer the question of the week in the membership site. Remember, uh, we will be linking in our membership site how to get to the race approved questions from the uh, forum. So you, know, you can answer the question there and then get the link to the, um, the course basically for the podcast. And uh, let's see, anything, anything else you can think of that we need to talk about, Jordan? I don't think so. That wraps up our liver for now. Next week, I'm excited for. I know. Oh my gosh. So exciting. We're, we're ramping up this month. We're going to start our immune system stuff, which is awesome. I'm super excited. Um, and then, you know, we're going to end September with a bang. I got to say that like doing the basics episodes every time we get into like new body system always like excites me. Cause I don't, there's something about going back to basics that always is just like, I always mm. learn something new and I'm not learning about a specific disease, but I'm learning about the body as a whole. And it, I, I love it. I love doing the basics episodes. Yeah. I, it, the basics it's, it's interesting because you kind of, it makes you realize how much you didn't understand it in text. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, oh, this was so hard. And now you're like, no, it totally makes sense to me now. But yeah. Yeah. In tech school, you're yeah. just like, I don't understand what any of these words mean. Yeah. yeah. It's so much more simple when I'm doing it now. Yeah. And like everything just clicks a little bit better. Well, and I, mean, I love we, the immune system, even though my immune system doesn't love me. Right. I yeah, love no. it. It does not work <laughs> <you> at all. <laughs> I don't hold a grudge. It's fine. Yeah, right. Uh, I mean, I I will try to rein in my passion for these subjects since um, I dealt with it since on both sides. Since, <laughs> since we're limited to an hour a piece for each episode. Yeah, I mean, hour, hour and a half. It'll be fine. <laughs> I think our max is like an hour and 20. Yeah. But we only got approval for one hour. Sorry, guys. <laughs> we, we try to, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. We try. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, um, I think this covers liver shunts pretty well. Let us know, you know, if you've got a patient that you wanted to talk about and, um, you know, let us know what your experience is with, with liver shunts, whether that's medical or surgical or just diagnosing, or do you have your own personal pet that has it? Um, we'd love to hear from you guys. And, uh, I think, I think that's it. All right, guys have a wonderful week. Keep getting your learn on, make sure to be that rockstar technician that you are. And uh, we'll talk to you next week. All right, guys. Have a great week. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you like what you heard, we'd love for you to share with someone you think might enjoy the podcast. And make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Want to give us a boost? Please leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher, and we'll be sure to say thank you. Find out everything about us at internalmedicineforvettechs.com. Talk to you next week. Bye.